Thanks, Chloe, and good morning to everybody who's joining us on-site and online today. Glad you are with us. Uh, before I jump into the message, I just want to echo something that Chloe talked about for a moment there, and that is our renovation project that is fast approaching. It's sometimes when we talk about these things, we plan them, we get excited for them, and then they sneak up on us, and that's kind of starting to happen <laughs> a little bit. Uh, we are actually one week away from starting to have to do a lot of the kind of that first team that removal of some, some wall panels and some, just some uh, stuff that's been sitting around a little longer than it needs to be to make room for the renovation. So if you are planning to sign up for that and haven't yet, we need you. <laughs> we need you soon to, uh, to let us know of your availability and willingness. More details can be found, again, at the information kiosk there where you can sign up or talk to Zach directly. And he's kind of quarterbacking a lot of this project for us, and he has lots of the answers to uh, to give to you for that. Another thing that's going to come up fairly quickly uh, is if anybody has sort of uh, an experience or um, ability in the electrical area, I need some people to join me and my son Sam. My son's an apprentice electrician and he and I are getting a small team together to do some rough in electrical work on the first Saturday in August. And so these are, these are open walls, bare studs, really, really simple, just fishing some wire and screwing some boxes to studs. So if you understand what those terms mean, you've probably done some basic electrical in the past and that's all we're doing and we could really use your help to make sure that gets done. So again, let us know about, um, about your interest and willingness to do that and we can uh, get those things looked after. It, the reality is if we don't find people to help us do that, I have to go hire people to do that and that's going to make it hard for us to finish on budget and on time. So <laughs> please consider how you can... Uh, join us in that. Well, let's talk about today's message now. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we are into a new series for the summer focusing upon the Ten Commandments, or as the Bible refers to them, the Ten Words. And we are into the third week now, looking at the third word to live by. And if you are a student of these things or have read ahead, you know that the third one is, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Or some version of that based upon, that's sort of the New King James Version style, is do not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, even if you word that that way or differently, we kind of know the common application of this. We tend to think that this is the commandment that comes to mind that we need to pay close attention to when we hit our thumb with a hammer. This is the commandment we need to take attention to when our eight-year-old son throws his Nintendo controller through our brand new flat screen TV. This is the command we needed to keep in mind when our daughter draws on the wall in black Sharpie. This is the command we need to keep in mind when our wife has been getting her hair done for four hours and you ask, how much did that cost? Right? These are all times that I personally have been tempted to use a rather colorful four-letter word. And I'm reminded of this third command. Now, there are actually many verses in the Bible that talk about corrupt talk, about crude joking, about, about careless use of words. And this actually, as we will see today, this isn't unrelated to that, but this may not actually be the best one to relate to that. You see, there's many, many verses that talk about these types of things and how those types of language choices are, are, are not the way that followers of Christ should speak are not the ways that we should relate to one another. And they are certainly not the type of language and relationships we want to have as part of our witness to the world. And in one sense, and to some way, this third command can relate to that. In this third command, this, this word to live by is found in Exodus... Oh, wait. Do you remember what chapter it's in? Exodus... Oh, if you are here last week, Exodus 20. It's one of the things we're going to learn the next 10 weeks. You're going to hear it 10 times. <laughs> so we're going to get this. Exodus chapter 20 in verse 7. 
is where we find the Ten Commandments. And verse 7 is where we find the third word. And it says this. It says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So, as we've learned the last two weeks, each of these words, these commands, have a deeper meaning and significance than what we initially see and maybe have thought of in the past. You see, because if this command or if this word was simply about not swearing, then I could do a sermon on self-control and some behavior modification and we could be good and go have brunch. And if you happen to be a person who kind of talks like a sailor, no offense to sailors, then maybe this is an opportunity for some personal growth for you. But for all of us who wish to abide by this third word to live by, let's take a bit of a deeper dive into what is behind this command. See, if you're with us last week, or if you want to go back and listen to that at westmeadows.org, you can do so and understand that the second command forbids careless thoughts and ideas about God. Thereby presenting, because if we have careless thoughts and ideas about God, it presents a diminished image of God's character to the world in our own lives. That's the second command. The third command forbids careless words about God. Careless words about God. Words that would tarnish his good name, his good character, and his promises. Now, to begin this principle, and what I mean, and help you understand what I'm getting at here, I think it's helpful for us to understand First of all, what's in a name? Before we can understand how we can misuse a name, let's understand what's in a name. Now, the reason and the manner in which people give names to their children or give names to people in society quite often is culturally driven. Here's what I mean by that. If we live in the West, which all of us do, sort of the Western world, parents tend to name their children after things like relatives. Um, They hear a name, they like the way that it sounds, or social trends are kind of the three common reasons that people will name their children certain things. For example, family traditions. In in my family, the eldest male Dixon always gets the middle name Alan. So that's true of my son Samuel. It's true of me. It's true of my dad. It's true of my grandfather. And I'm not sure how many generations it goes back. But the eldest male Dixon gets the middle name Alan. So sometimes people name based upon relatives in the West. Other times, they like the way it sounds. Have you ever met a family who has all of their kids have the same first letter for all of their names? Right? There's a few families who have chosen to do that. If you want to make it very challenging, like choose the letter U. Right? Like, like Uriah, Ulysses, Uri, you're out of names. Like that's all that you can kind of end up with. It's hard. It limits how many kids you can have. But then there's social trends as well. Back in the 90s, two of the most popular women's names were Rachel and Monica. Anyone know why? Sitcom Friends. You know what's happening right now? If you go back about you know, two, three months, the, on the list of popular boy names, at the spot of 864 was a name that has now bumped up to 47. Why did it move up? 820 spots? Because the name is Maverick. The movie Top Gun came out. All of a sudden, Maverick went from 847 on the list, or 864 on the list, to 47 on the list because of social trends. This is how people in the West tend to name children, tend to name people. But when we go to the Bible and we go to the ancient Near East, we see that naming is deeply significant. And a lot of thought and purpose goes into how people are named in the Bible. 
Reason being is because names in the Bible convey cues about character, events, and they even could be understood to foretold the destiny of a child. One example I'll point out for you is the name Jacob. If you read the book of Genesis, you read about the birth of Jacob. And Jacob was born seconds after his twin brother, Esau. And he comes out holding, grasping his brother's heel, it says. And so this name Jacob became a Hebrew idiom that referred to one who would supplant, one who would be a deceiver. And the name Jacob became synonymous with grasping for control through trickery and deceit. And if you read the story of Jacob in Genesis, you'll find that he was true to his name. He conceived, I mean, he, he, he connived, he deceived, and he supplanted his brother as heir in the family. But then fast forward a little bit through the story of Jacob, and we find that many years later, Jacob has an encounter with the Lord. And he wrestles, of matter of speaking, with God all night, it says. And the next day, the Lord changes his name from Jacob to Israel. His name gets changed to Israel. Israel, which means because you have struggled with God and with man and have overcome. See, Jacob reached this point in his life where through his encounter with God, he let go of his need for control. He acknowledged God's lordship over his life. And he received this blessing from the Lord. And because he had a changed character and a changed destiny, he had a changed name. And his name went from being Jacob to being Israel. And Israel went on to have 12 sons, the 12 sons of Jacob. The 12 sons of Jacob, also known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And those 12 tribes of Israel became the nation of Israel that is now standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, receiving the 10 words to live by from God. As we can see, names have significance. Names have power and purpose. So how does that apply to us using the Lord's name in vain? Well, last week, if you remember, when I introduced the, the command, we've talked about the first command the last couple of weeks, that God does so by, by prefacing all of these, by explaining that he is the one true God. And that is by his will and by his hand that he has set his people free and brought them to this place where they're receiving these laws that would govern their relationship with him and with each other. And if you remember that... that, that the way, that, the way that this was manifest, the power of his hand that brought about their freedom was through these plagues that were brought upon the nation of Egypt and upon Pharaoh. And this means of deliverance was also a demonstration of God's power and of his sovereignty over all things. And the relevance of this for us today still is that in the midst of these plagues, we go back to Exodus chapter 9, in the midst of these plagues that are being dished out upon Egypt, God says this very important thing through Moses to Pharaoh. In Exodus 9, God declares the purpose and the promise for these. He says this, But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And as the events of the Exodus would unfold, God's power and sovereignty would be made known. God would be proven to be true to his promises as he rescued his people and established his covenant with them. God would be proven to be faithful to his people as he protected them and guided them and provided for them in the wilderness. God would be proven to be known throughout the land as people would hear about the stories of the plagues and the rescues and the provision and the manna and the quail that would come and the guidance that he provided to them through a pillar of fire and through a pillar of cloud. People would come to know that God was was true to his word, that he was faithful to his people, that he was known throughout the land and feared. 
His name would become known. Therefore, his power, his promises, and his character were proclaimed throughout the earth. And so when God's name is evoked, when his name is invoked in our lives, in our prayers, in our conversations, we're not just referencing some individual. We are referencing the character and the promises of God. That's what we're pulling into our words. It's not just a name and a person. We are referencing the character and the promises of God. And there are many positive ways that we can do this. We are told to do this when we pray in the name of the Lord. When we align our hearts and our mind with the character and the will of God. We're we're told to call upon the name of the Lord. To seek him that he would act according to his will in in our lives and according to his promises in our lives. But as this word to live by states, there's also negative ways that we can call upon his name too. Some versions will say there's ways that we can use his name in vanity. Some like this in the NIV will say we can misuse his name. All of these words have to do with the idea of using God's name in a false manner. Using it in a worthless manner. Using it in a selfish manner. And this is a serious offense from God's perspective. Why? Because when we do this, we're not just, we're not just speaking about a person. When we do this, God is seriously offended by it because we are presenting a tarnished character and a tarnished promise to the world around us. We are misrepresenting God and the world around us when we do this. And instead of drawing people towards him, we can even lead them astray from him. You see, misusing the Lord's name in vain is not just about profanity. It's actually about profaning his character and his promises. It's not just about profanity. It's about profaning his name and his, his character and his promises. And now, you might think, okay, you know, self-control, behavior modification, I've got this one beat, we're good to go. But it actually happens more subtly and more often than I think a lot of us realize. And for the few minutes I have left, I want to give you a couple of examples of how this maybe has been experienced and maybe even you've fallen guilty to some of these things. I'll give you a couple examples. One example of how we can do this in a subtle and common way is by playing the God card. By bolstering our own power, the power of our own word, the, the power of our own will, by appealing to a higher authority. Now you may have done this, or you've probably encountered somebody doing this, if you've ever heard them say something like a friend that came to me a few years ago and said, hey, can you help me move on Saturday? I got a bunch of guys together. There's not much stuff. You'll be done in an hour. I swear to God. I was there for eight hours. <laughs> if you've ever had a child come to you and say, Dad, I'll do all my chores after just one more video. I cross my heart. Hope that I stick a needle in my eye. And, of course, the chores never get done. If you've ever said, Officer, I swear on my mother's life, if I had known you were there, I wouldn't have been speeding. Right? Now, these sorts of statements are innocent enough, but here's the question that's common to all three of them. Why did the person feel the need to add the whole, I swear to God, I I swear to God it's true? Well, the reason being is is either they're lying, (laughs) or, or maybe they're telling the truth, but in the midst of telling the truth, they feel like there's this internal deficit within themselves that needs to be overcome somehow. But whether they're lying or or telling the truth in an internal deficit, either way, they're appealing to a higher authority to add his credibility to themselves. Playing the God card. Make sense? You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke about this. 
He spoke about this kind of oath giving in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he was addressing this issue of, of swearing of oaths. And here's what he says in Matthew 5, beginning in verse uh, 33. He says again, You have heard it said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one of your hairs white or black. Now, when he says at the beginning here, you've heard it said, he's actually referring to a verse back in, uh, in, in um, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. That's rooted in Exodus 20, verse 7, the, the third word to live by. And this verse that he's quoting from Leviticus 19 says, Do not swear falsely by my name. This is God speaking. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. Now, when we're talking about oaths here, I think it's important for us to understand, we're not talking about, like, serious, solemn, formal oaths. Like, Jesus is not forbidding you to stand in front of your family, friends, and God at a wedding, and he's like, don't you dare make promises to each other. That's not what he's talking about, right? He's not saying that you shouldn't swear an oath in court. You know, do you promise to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, to help you, God? That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is not these serious types of things, but he's cautioning people against using token seals as qualifiers for honesty. Those things like, cross my heart. I swear on my mother's grave. I I swear to God, if I'm lying, I'm dying. These sorts of token seals that people put on their words as qualifiers for honesty. That's what he's talking about. And he concludes it, and part of the reason we know he is, is because he concluded in verse 37 by giving this instruction to his followers. He says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Jesus is saying, if you have a character flaw to the point where it causes you to lie, where it causes you to not be trustworthy in the eyes of other people, to the point where you are constantly are feeling tempted to bolster your own credibility by swearing some sort of token oath, if you feel that, then you have an integrity issue, is basically what he's saying. If you feel that, if you're feeling the need to bolster your own credibility by appealing to my credibility, you have an integrity issue. And you need to work on living a life where you are known by simply saying yes or no, and that is enough for people. You might recall a few months back, we played a game during a service called Thrilling Things About Thena. Any of you remember that? <laughs> Thrilling Things About Thena. And I asked you to consider, of these four random facts, which of these four are true about Thena? That Thena has her, and if those of you don't know, Thena, Thena is our children's minister, our pastor of family ministries. That Thena has her NASCAR license. That Thena, who's five foot two, got a basketball scholarship. That Thena is related to Brett the Hitman Hart, WWE Hall of Famer. And that Thena was a professional frog catcher. Remember that? And we picked, remember I told you, all four of those things are true about Thena. <laughs> it's amazing. And you all believed me. Thank you for believing me. <laughs> you thought I was going to tell you I was lying all of a sudden, didn't you? No, thank you for believing me. <laughs> And I think part of the reason you believe me is because I'm hoping that over the years that we've known each other, you've come to see that, that I tend not to share falsehoods. I, I tend not to exaggerate things or lie. And Athena as well. 
And that's how I've experienced Thena, is that when, when Thena tells me something, even like she had a basketball scholarship, I might be like, well, five foot two, how'd that work out? Right? I might have some questions about it, but I don't doubt her. I don't doubt her because I've come to know her as a person of integrity, and her word is enough for me. You see, the modern-day adage of, is still true, that a person's word is their bond. That's still true, and I think that modern-day adage is at the heart of Jesus' words to his followers here, is that we need to be people of integrity. Because misusing the Lord's name is not just about profanity. It's also about profaning his name by bolstering our own lack of integrity with his. Does that make sense? Because not only do we need to also watch our words, but this goes a step further, in that we also need to watch our actions and make sure that we practice what we preach as well. It's one thing you get our words aligned, but our actions must follow suit as well. This is the second thing I want to draw your attention to today. Now, you've likely heard that phrase before, you know, practice what you preach. But perhaps you haven't thought of it in terms of, of misusing God's name before. And so let me help you understand what, what, kind of what we're getting at here. Because keep in mind that we are God's representatives in the world. The world is watching us. The world is listening to our words and watching our actions. And more often than not, those who do not yet know the Lord will take their initial cues about him, will begin to draw conclusions about him by listening and watching his people. And if we as his people, if you consider yourself to be a follower of Christ, and you are preaching a moral code, but not living by it, don't be surprised when you hear the word that some of us don't like from the world, a bunch of hypocrites. You've probably heard that before. It gets levied against the church and against Christians all the time. And sometimes unfairly. I'm not suggesting that 100% of the time that it's fair and accurate. I got to tell you, I've been doing this for a while. Met a lot of Christians. Met a lot of pastors. Sometimes it's true. Not practicing what they preach. Do as I say, not as I do. If you are the leader, if you are in a home, a Christian home, and you are a parent who requires your child to apologize for everything they do wrong, and yet you have never once ever apologized to your spouse. If you are in a Christian workplace and you're an employer who expects your employees to put in a long, hard, solid 40 hours a week and yet you come in late and go golfing three times a week. If, if it's a church that proclaims to love God and to love people and the worship leader is up on the platform with hands raised and singing the top of their voice but they have not opened their Bible for personal devotions in a month or if, if there's a greeter at the door who smiles and with a big smile and says, I'm so glad you're here today but yet harbors disdain in their hearts for certain types of people. They may fall prey to these types of issues, this type of hypocritical thinking and acting. This isn't actually all that dissimilar from something that Jesus confronted the Pharisees about. You see, we find this in Matthew chapter 15, when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees by saying, you guys say all the right stuff so often. And I'm summarizing you know, a section of passage here, but he basically sums it up by saying, you guys say all the right stuff, but you fail to live it out so often. And he says, he says this to some Pharisees in, in Matthew uh, chapter 15, beginning in verse 7. He simply then says to them, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, 
but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. They've merely reduced these teachings to human rules. You honor me with your lips, Jesus says to them. You honor me with your lips. You, you use my name in a way that could be valid, that, that could be so true if only your lives would also reveal the power of that truth. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me, he says. Now, none of us are perfect on this. Yeah, and don't, don't feel like I'm like preaching down at you. I would be hypocritical to stand up here and say that I'm not just as guilty as anybody of this stuff. But I want it to be something that all of us who profess to be followers of Christ are aware of and concerned about. Because as I mentioned, the, the world is, is listening. The, the world is watching. And here's what I found as I meet people who, who encounter the church for the first time, or people in the community, and, and I have all these conversations because if I get my hair cut or go to a restaurant or whatever, it's like, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a pastor. After about like, two minutes of silence, then we start talking about things. And, and so I meet a lot of people about these types of things. Yeah, it's easier to say. I mean, I, I sell fire insurance. Sometimes that's easier, right? But when I talk to people, I quite often find that it's not Jesus' words that they're offended by. But it's actually how they see those words lived out or, or not lived out in his people's lives. And this brings me to, to one of my favorite quotes that I've ever you know, come across and ever come across this in seminary. And I like starred it and circled it and highlighted it and it's, and it's stuck with me ever since. And it's one that some of you may have heard before. But it's by a man named Brandon Manning who said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. See, Jesus' assessment of the Pharisees in Matthew 15 ends by pointing to a solution. It really does point us to a solution. But the solution is not better words. The solution is a transformed heart that doesn't just know the words of God, but is convicted by them, is transformed by them, and lives them out in the world around them. You see, misusing the name of the Lord is not just about profanity. It's also about profaning his name by having a poor witness of him in the world. And there's one third one I want to bring up before we're done here today. And this third one that we can think of is, and I think slipping into our culture and into Christian culture as well, and it's when we use words that are becoming too familiar. There's a, a tendency in society towards informality, whether we're talking to our bosses, teachers, mentors, pastors, informality is definitely increasing. Now, at, at the risk of sounding like an old man, when I think about people in my lives who I see as leaders and elders and whatnot, I still think about like Mr. Duncan, uh, Professor Williams, Pastor Brakey. These are, these are leaders and elders and people of authority in my life. Some of them, I, don't even, I don't even know Mr. Duncan's first name. I know he was my grade six teacher. I know he drove a BMW motorcycle. I know he used to be in the military. I don't know his first name though, Mr. Duncan. That, that's, that's all I needed. That's who he was in my life. Now, I do believe there's a place for being a little more informal. For example, when I'm in the classroom with Professor Williams, I like to refer to him as Professor Williams. But when Professor Williams and I were traveling for some seminars, you know, about two years ago, and we'd be on the same planes in the same waiting rooms, and we would even share Ubers, and we'd sit in cafes together, I, I, I called him David because we're having coffee in an airport. 
It was David. That was the nature of the context, the relationship that we were in. And so my selection of references for people tends to match the context and the nature of that relationship. Does that make sense? Now, at times, I've experienced that informality in these things has overreached to the point where it actually compromises. It can compromise the sanctity of the office or the authority that a person holds. There are times when this overreaches and it starts to affect the sanctity of the office and the authority that a person, a leader in your life, has over you. And the outcome of this is important because the outcome of this, I believe, is a diminished sense within people's ability to serve, to, to follow, a decreased, a diminished ability for people to be corrected by a leader in their lives. And this, I believe, extends to how we view the name of Jesus, of how people use the name Jesus at times. And let me explain to you how the name Jesus is used in the New Testament. Because I think many of you will find this quite interesting and insightful. See, when we open up the New Testament, we get to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. First four books of the Bible. When you look at those books, outside of any of the author's sort of references to Jesus as a historical person. So all the historical person situations set aside. You know, Jesus went and prayed by himself. Historical events of his life. Anytime you come across a situation where there is a relationship being noted between Jesus and a person, between Jesus and something, anytime there's a relationship or a dialogue, a conversation taking place, every single time, it's the word teacher and Lord. There's only one time in that context when relationship is relevant, only one time that the name Jesus is used, and it's when Jesus is speaking to a demon. But even in that case, the demon acknowledges his deity. We get outside the Gospels, we get into the letters, the 21 letters that were written to the churches. You know, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all, all those letters. 21 letters. The name Jesus is used 28 times, again referring to a historical person. Uh, moments of history, especially when the epistle writer, the letter writer is referring to a non-believer. 28 times the name Jesus is used and it's used as a historical person. The rest of those 21 letters... The other 485 times, the word is Lord or Christ is used. 95% of the times that the name Jesus comes up in some fashion in the 21 letters, 95% of the times out of the nearly over 500 times it comes up, 95% of the times they intentionally chose to use a word of respect and authority. Why? Because names have meaning. Because names have significance. And the name Jesus means he saves. And when somebody who is writing the letter in the Bible, when a gospel writer is writing about Jesus, they have experienced Jesus. They know Jesus saves. They've experienced new life in him. And so they can't just say Jesus. They have to say Jesus, the Christ. Because Christ is not his last name. Christ is his position. Christ is his authority. Christ is what makes him worthy to be teacher, Lord, and Messiah. And we see that this is the reason why we get this name. And we look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 where Paul, who's writing this letter to the church of Philippi, says this about Jesus. He says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every single name. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ 
who is worthy to be the Lord of my life. Amen? To the glory of God the Father, he says. And so here's the question I ask you. By what name do you reference Jesus? And by whatever name you reference him, what do you mean by that? And is that meaning become too familiar? Is it just buddy Jesus? Or is he Lord and Savior Jesus? Is he the one that I go to simply when I'm in need of something or I have a deficiency in my will or in my life? I simply go to him and say, hey, could you, could you top me up a little? Or do we go to him proclaiming his authority in awe of trust in wonder and faith? See, the titles that we use, they, they tend to form and reinforce concepts about who it is that we're addressing. I remember one youth pastor I, I encountered who, who wanted to build really strong relationships with his youth and have a really successful youth group. And so he's like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let them call me Andy. And so uh, that's what he went by. And, and the teens loved him. The youth loved Andy. And the youth group was growing and more people were coming and, and it looked really, really successful. But it actually wasn't. You see, because as the youth group would grow, so too with the problems, the complexity of trying to keep all of these youth kind of organized and, you know, youth can get a, you know, they feed on each other energy-wise. And he tried to get them to calm down, settle down sometimes. And they would, they would just mock him and they'd make fun of him and, they'd, and they wouldn't listen at all. And, and when some of them had problems, they wouldn't come and share those problems with them because it wasn't the youth pastor. It, it was Andy. And so even though they had lots of people there and he had lots of friends, he didn't have disciples. He didn't have people who would come and share their problems and share their heart and, and listen to him and extend authority and position over their lives, which is what they really needed. They had lots of friends, but they didn't have a lot of youth pastors. They needed that pastoral figure in their lives. And, and we know this is true in our own lives as well, because the titles that we use reflect the nature of the relationships of which we expect to have with people. Like really, how many parents here would be okay if your child came home and used your first name? Instead of coming home and saying, hi, mom, he came home and said, hi, Kathy. Uh, I'm just going to guess that you're going to pause for a second and like, let's, let's rewind that. <laughs> let's correct that and try it again, right? It's not Kathy, it's mom. And it's not because you're authoritarian, it's because, whoa, whoa, whoa. The word you just used sends a signal to me about the relationship that we have. And I'm not okay with that relationship, Kathy. That, that doesn't work. The names we use have meaning. You see, when it comes to Jesus, we're able to share friendship and closeness, but we do not share equality. We do not share equality with him. And when the name Jesus becomes too familiar, whether it's a society at large or even within the church, it diminishes people's awareness of his power of his authority, of his promises. And the result can be a decline in desire to engage him and trust him. The result can be that people fail to reach out to him and place their faith in him. You see, on this third point, misusing the Lord's name is not just about profanity. It's about profaning his name and our relationship with him by allowing it to become too casual. See, the name of the Lord has power. The name of the Lord has power. And this command is not only to not misuse the name, but also within this, there is an inherent idea that we are to use his name, but to use it appropriately. We are to use his name, not, not to avoid it, 
to avoid misusing it. But we are to use it. We are to use it to acknowledge his greatness, to, to call upon him, to, to pray in his name. And when we do those things, when we engage him in that manner, we engage in his name properly, it creates a story of new life with Jesus within us. We get the story of this new life of Jesus within us. And, and I don't know by what name you might refer to Jesus or, or, or what your relationship with him is right now. You may be going through a time of struggling and and in, in the midst of that tough time, you might even be struggling to know what name to refer to him as. And maybe even you feel in your heart that there's this move towards misusing his name when you think about where things are at in your situation right now. But let me encourage you to not only avoid misusing his name, but take a step forward and call out upon his name. Call out upon Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one, the one who was sent to be known by many names. The one who was sent to be known by Savior because he is the only one who is worthy to pay the price for our sins upon the cross of the glory of the Father. He is the only one who can be known as the Lord of our lives because he is worthy of the respect. He is worthy of the authority. He is worthy of that position in our lives. Therefore, he is worthy of the name Lord in our lives. He is the one who, the only one who will be known as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Almighty One, the rock upon which we stand, the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the one who can be known as the hope for all people. I don't know what names resonate with you when you think of Jesus. But I want to invite you to consider what those names are and, and what that relates about your relationship with God. Is he a man of history? Is he the Christ? Is he the Lord of your life? Is he the one in whom you can place your faith and your hope? And I pray that we would not misuse the name of the Lord, but that we would use it powerfully to experience new life with Jesus in our own lives, but then to go a step further and to live out his name as we live out his grace, truth, and love in the world around us.